the concern is if you have on a mass scale, a lot of people experiencing that loss of power, that loss of control. You want to you you continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse room cops? It's almost cliche to say that knowledge is power. But we are living in a time where, for some people, the concept of truth is merely a power play, while others seek to use truth to advance their own ends. We are having a series of conversations here on Everything Just Changed about power as we seek to understand why power has become such an explosive topic in our time. And we're hoping to understand what it would look like to recover a uniquely Christian approach to power. So today we're going to be talking about information and misinformation and the way that information has been marshaled in the service of power in our cultural moment. Welcome to Everything Just Changed, where we envision a post-culture war church and equip leaders who just can't even anymore. Well, we are really excited about this conversation today. We are talking with Elizabeth Newman. Elizabeth is a former Homeland Security official. She's held appointments in the uh, George W. Bush, as well as Donald Trump administrations. During the Trump administration, she served in a number of roles, including as the Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention at the Department of Homeland Security. Elizabeth Newman, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm super excited to be a part of this conversation. We're excited to have you. It's not often we get, you know, former Homeland Security secretaries or assistant secretaries on the pod very often. So thank you so much. Elizabeth, <laughs> could you just briefly tell us how you came to work for the Department of Homeland Security? Yeah. So uh grew up in Dallas, went to school in Austin. And that's where I worked on the Bush campaign and ended up going to D.C. And of course, 9-11 happened shortly after he took office and Homeland Security was the the new field. Um, and I happened to um, land a job uh, as the executive assistant to the Homeland Security Advisor. Um, and I just kind of ever since have been um, a part of the Homeland Security field, working domestic counterterrorism, information sharing, uh, cybersecurity risk type stuff over the last 20 years. Um, got married, had kids. My husband's job moved us around the country. Uh, Denver, where you guys are, or near, yes. um, yeah. was my favorite place. Uh, Seattle and Dallas. Um, and then, you know, 2016, the election's happening. I'm working. I got the kids, little kids, and not paying attention at all to the election. So when Trump won, I was... I think like many in the country kind of shocked that he had pulled it off. And I had a friend call and say, Hey, do you want to come in? Which is kind of the normal thing in politics. Like if your party wins, Hey, you know, everybody taps their network. Do you want to come in? I put your resume in. No, 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 not interested. They called again in December. Nope, not interested. Then this friend called about three days before the election or the inauguration and made the case or the plea that they didn't know who they could trust, that they had a lot of um, inexperienced people that were coming in, uh, a lot of people from the Trump network that had never worked in government. And what I didn't know at the time, but I could kind of read in her voice, is that she had just had a briefing 
on Russian uh, election interference. And so there was this recognition that we were up against some pretty significant threats and it wasn't really clear who we could trust even in our own government. And wow. so the the plea there kind of pulled on my heartstrings and my husband and I prayed about it and had some tense conversations and then decided to go in and I served for um, John Kelly, the, the first secretary of Homeland Security as his deputy chief of staff and then moved over to our policy office and, and did the assistant secretary role for a couple of years. We're going to talk about information and misinformation and disinformation, but how did you get involved in in issues of uh, abuse of power and start speaking out about abuse of power? Yeah. So um, I left uh, the, the Department of Homeland Security in April of 2020. Um, I started making plans the year before, but um, we had had a series of domestic terrorism attacks that summer of 2020 or 2019. And that created a lot of work for my office. And so it just, it took time and then COVID hit. Anyway, April, 2020, everybody remembers, that's when you guys launched your podcast. Um, I came home and was virtual schooling my kids. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I was, you know, focused on the home front, decompressing, exercising, not really paying attention to the world. And, um, I ended up doing a Bible study with a group of girls that um, we were in Bible study together back like in 2007, um, spent like four years together before before many of us got married, went on mission trips together. Hey, we're all stuck at home. We can't go in person anywhere. We're all scattered across the country now. We decided to do a Bible study. So we're catching up. And I hadn't talked to many of these ladies in the last couple of years because I was super busy. And I was telling them some of the things I was realizing as I was decompressing. And they're like, you really need to say some of this publicly. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not what security people do. We don't talk publicly because we talk, you know, we deal with classified information. So we, we're not in the public eye. Um, but they were really encouraging that there were insights that I had about the dangers of the way that I was seeing the government run that needed to be uh, shared with the public. But the thing that really probably put me over the edge was uh, the Lafayette Square moment, that that was the moment where we had uh, Trump walk across the park that's in front of the White House uh, for a photo op uh, in front of a church that had been damaged during uh, a protest the night before. It's the famous one where he has the Bible upside down. Well, in order yeah. to clear that square, they um, the police that were involved, and it's multiple agencies that were involved, um, they used tear gas. And they used low-flying helicopters. And if, you, if you've ever been to that park, like it, you're just kind of like, the, there are buildings that are tall. Like, why would you swoop down? It was dangerous for the guys flying the helicopters. It was a scene out of something you would see in a, in a um, uh, developing country or a, um, you know, a, con- a country experiencing a military coup, a totalitarian government. Usually the United States sends... Uh, statements of condemnation to those countries. We withdraw our ambassador. Mm. We apply sanctions when people abuse their their people that way. And 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 look, there are tons of um, uh, inspector generals reports that have come out about why it happened the way it happened. I don't think that Trump specifically said tear gas the crowd, but it was emblematic of what happens when you have a leader like Trump who over a period of time systematically pushed out anybody with experience 
anybody that had the guts to tell them no, mm. you end up with inexperienced people who make bad decisions and who think that the right answer is to lean into their authority and they don't understand the, the protections that we have in place in this country to make sure that our law enforcement services don't violate our constitutional rights. So it was just a realization that the guardrails were already off and it was just going to get worse if he was reelected. So I, I felt like the American people deserve to know that before they cast their ballot. Hmm. Okay. And then I, we, we had a previous conversation in, in which I think you said, but even still at that moment, you thought that after the election, a lot of this was going to go away. Yeah. And then it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like it was 2020 was just such a tough year. Um, COVID really, really messed with all of us. Oh, um, yeah. As a society, we experience significant loss. We are not really good at grief. Um, so I don't think we properly grieved everything that we lost. And, and of course, there's the most significant people that actually lost loved ones. But then that lower level grief of the way that we conducted our lives, the, the hopes that we had, the graduations, the birthdays, the get togethers, um, jobs, you know, lots of loss that we don't know how to deal with. And we didn't really have anybody in leadership because we're so divided. Um, we didn't have a unifying leader to be able to lead us in a healthy way through that very real um, loss and the, yeah. and the grief um, that comes with that. And then you add to it um, an election that is, you know, every election we go through, it, it, it's always polarized. We're, we're our, both parties uh, speak in hyperbole and uh, everything is an existential threat. And this is the most consequential election of our lifetime. And if you, that just kind of amps up this sense of um, I, I'm already feeling a loss of control. I'm already feeling like, uh, you know, my world has been turned upside down and I don't understand why. Um, that leads to a lot of anger and um, people with a lot of anger tend to sometimes lack impulse control and they <laughs> go and do things that um, in a normal, sane year where you're not experiencing a COVID-like ca catastrophe, yeah. um, you know, we, we just, you know, people snap. Um, so in that context, I think we what we were seeing throughout the summer of 2020 with the um, uh, protests around George Floyd's death then the counter protests to the protests. And then the, the, you know, it kind of blew up a few times that summer. And we were having this conversation of, is this going to lead to political violence? And, and those of us that study radicalization and study violent extremism, we're seeing signs and indications that whether he knew it or not, Trump was kind of seeding the, mm. the playing field for people to potentially commit acts of violence. And of course, this was not new. If you look back over his tenure, starting in 2015, there have been studies that have shown that when he would speak about certain uh, outgroups, um, uh, immigrants, uh, Muslims, um, you would see in that geographic area where he had held a rally, or you would see in the online space where he might have tweeted something, increases in hate speech, increases in violence, and yeah. hate crimes towards that outgroup. So we had seen this effect of when he would speak, 
he has kind of this rallying cry effect. Now, that does that make him uh, responsible, you know, before God? Probably. Um, in the eyes of the law, um, you know, may, that's much harder to prove. Yeah. Um, but, you know, certainly five years in, when you see this cause and effect, the most uh, notable one was the El Paso shooter where Trump's rhetoric ended up in the terrorist manifesto. If you don't at some point recognize that you are actually leading a very small percentage of your followers, it's not everybody, but it's a very small percentage to feel like they are justified and empowered to commit an act of violence, then I I think you should be held accountable. So you're watching the summer of 2020 play out. He is playing on this law and order theme because that's the only thing that seems to be working from from a, a political perspective. And we're all just kind of very nervous that something could go sideways very quickly. And it, and it did in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, we saw also saw some militia guys have a plot to try to capture Governor Whitmore because mm-hmm. they didn't like the COVID lockdowns. He had been very antagonistic towards Governor, Governor Whitmore. So you know, maybe there's a correlation, maybe not. Um, but you're just seeing the steady drumbeat of actors you know, crossing that criminal threshold and moving towards violence, what is the election going to bring? And what is the post-election period going to bring? So I, I think we were all assuming that if we could just get through this transition, that I think we we're hoping two things. One, COVID would normalize. Like mm. we would in 2021 get back to normal life. And that has not totally panned out that way. Um, but two, we were hoping that you know, Trump would fade to the background and normalcy could return and and not yeah. you would still have people that would be diehard Trump fans, but a portion of the the group that had been so supportive of him would probably just start following whoever the next Republican leader is. And of course that that didn't happen. We ended up with that catastrophic moment on January 6th that that really has changed the nature of the extremist challenges that we have in the United States. Well, and it really seems like, I mean, just to, I don't want to put words in your mouth or anything here, but it seems like the the combination of misinformation, either by exaggeration, outright falsehoods and lies, but also that disinformation, like the active uh, disinformation campaign that Russia conducted behind the scenes and on social media, all of that created a plausibility and permission structure that made January 6th possible. And uh, I, I just wonder, like, is that part of what you are? Is that why this is such a huge focus for you now uh, that you're um, outside of uh, the government um, role? Absolutely. I mean, there is um, not a mass political violence movement absent the lies from Donald Trump and his cohort. Um, You don't have January 6th without the lie that the election was stolen. So if you can figure out a way to um, help people come back to truth, to facts, um, and and that, that can be hard, by the way, like for those that are really, really bought in, that they, they are just convinced that the election was stolen. They've read all of the, you know, the propaganda that's out there and that, you know, you're most likely not going to be able to convince them. Yeah. Um, mo- most studies about disinformation as well as radicalized thought 
Um, it is very difficult to argue somebody out of an ideology. And that's really what it is at that point, at the point that you believe the election is stolen and that there's a deep state and that it was Antifa there in Capitol Lake, that you have just kind of fully bought into this ideology that is not grounded in reality. But there are, you know, there's a huge chunk of the public that doesn't know what to think. And yeah. they're probably tired, quite frankly, of listening to people fight at each other. And though that's the the audience where it's really important to educate them about the fact that there are active after efforts out there, domestic and uh, foreign, um, trying to uh, trying trying to manipulate them and get them to believe something, uh, so, so that they um, can operate in this deceived state uh, that creates a a country that's very polarized and a country that um, is incapable in the in the foreign context. The goal here is let's so weaken the United States resolve mm -hmm. that if we want to do something, they don't have the ability to counter us. So, for example, if we want to inv invade Ukraine, then the United States is so domestically weak, so torn up on the on the dealing with internal stuff. Yeah. They don't have the guts to, to stand up to us. I mean, that's why foreign powers do the disinformation game. And by the way, this is like old stuff, like Soviet playbook, active oh, yeah. measures. This is not new. It's just been uh, advanced in the internet age and um, a, in a way that is um, so subtle and we didn't catch it soon enough. So it is not well understood in our country that, that we're being messed with. Well, and this is why, like, I I was so excited to have you on because it was, I first met you at a uh, pastor's workshop for misinformation and disinformation that I got invited to from the American Values Coalition. And I said yes, because I'm like, wait, there's some, this is being done specifically for pastors. What in the, like, I've never even heard anything like that. And I remember it was when you were kind of walking through your slides and, 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 and talking through the relationship between this and radicalization and everything you just said about how that uh, is a national security issue, that it hit me how much our inability to make the connection to information and its aberrance uh, to power is that is how that is a huge reason why we haven't known what to do with Trump, because he's just saying these things. He's not doing anything. But that's actually that actually is a function and form of power. And so when you wield it in a way that is self-serving and not stewarding it well for the sake of others or for the sake of the country you're elected to lead, um, and you are using it for po political ends, uh, it becomes it becomes toxic and and manipulative. So that that makes that makes so much sense. Um, you're connecting a lot of dots for me. Yeah. So Elizabeth, in your work on counterterrorism and threat prevention, you, um, you told us in a previous conversation, a lot of that work um, was in relation to Islamic terrorism and how radicalization happens overseas. And then you began noticing connections between that and what was happening in a domestic context. So could you, a, a couple of questions, could you tell us what radicalization is and how it happens, first of all? Yeah, so start with definitions. Radicalization to violence is the process where an individual comes to believe that the threat or useful, or sorry, threat or use of unlawful violence is necessary or even justified to accomplish a goal. 
Um, the mobilization to violence piece is the process an individual takes to, to action and prepare to engage in violence or material support of violence to advance their cause. So um, when we look at radicalization, a very simplistic way to think about it, it is not linear. Mm -hmm. You can have somebody that is would not be radicalized and two days later um, is radicalized and mobilized to violence. You could also have somebody that goes on a process that takes years and maybe they're, uh, you know, back, if you were somehow to be able to put them on a, a, a graph, uh, say they're, they're very close to launching something and then they, they back off. Like it, it's not mm -hmm. linear. So I'm going to describe something linear that's actually sure. not. But when we look at it, we, for purposes of how do we interact with different stages of the process, we look at vulnerable and then we look at those that are radicalized and those who are mobilizing to violence. If you're mobilizing to violence, you are at that point a law enforcement concern. Um, we have laws in the books that allow law enforcement to um, collect information to figure out what you're doing and to disrupt and arrest you and prosecute you. The problem for the way that the U.S. Constitution is written, anything before that um, is not something that a law enforcement entity should be dealing hmm. with. So good news um, from a constitutional perspective, you can believe whatever you want to believe. You can be radicalized and you can think violence is justified. That is legal. That is protected by the Constitution. Um, the downside, though, as a security person is those restrictions make it much more difficult for me to find out, you know, where, when you're moving from that radicalized space to the mobilizing to yeah. violence space. Mm -hmm. So during my tenure at DHS, we spent a lot of time um, looking at different tools outside of the law enforcement realm that could be used to help reduce the number of radicalized individuals and, and add uh, protective factors to vulnerable individuals so that we can hopefully reduce reduce both categories. Because at any given point, your vulnerable population is going to be the largest. If you're looking at a graph, you're going to have a much larger number of people that are, could be vulnerable to being radicalized. And then a smaller group of that is going to be radicalized and a much, 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 much smaller percentage that would actually commit an act of violence, which is why we don't arrest you for having a radical belief, because you most likely are not going to go yeah. do anything. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that if you are holding a radical belief, A, it's probably not healthy for you. I think we all know individuals that, um, you know, are, are radicalized about something, <laughs> think violence is justified for mm -hmm. something. It's usually it, tearing them up yeah. inside. Like it's indicative that something is, is off in their psychosocial well-being. Um, and then on the vulnerable side, um, let me just a, an example that we've been doing this in public health and um, uh, crime prevention for a long time. This idea that we know certain individuals um, are more prone to being recruited by gangs. Yeah. We know uh, certain risk factors involved in people that are uh, recruited into human trafficking. So if we can reduce those risk factors or add protective factors to that individual, reduce their vulnerability, they're less likely to be radicalized. Mm. So the, the concept here that the U.S. in many ways is very late to the game on, our European partners have been doing this for a lot longer, mm. um, that we as the United States have overly emphasized the law enforcement tools and not appropriately looked at things like mental health, 
social services, and NGO support, including churches, and the roles that they can play in addressing the underlying factors that lead to radicalization. And the key thing, you you know, your, your broader question about parallels and radicalization, everybody thinks like radicalized, you know, if you are, if you belong to ISIS, um, you have this, uh, you know, radical belief about the role of Islam and that there should be Islamic caliphate. Okay, you, you probably do. But it turns out that after 20 years of studying this, the ideology is not really the driver. It is other factors in that individual's life that have led them to need the ideology to address some some hole, some uh, uh, tragedy or um, uh, trauma that they've experienced. And and speaking to a, to pastors here, hey, you know the good news for us is if the ideology is actually the balm or the 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 distraction. Um, to avoid whatever, you know, the other things that are going on in our life, we actually have the solution yeah. here. We, we know what brings healing. Yeah. Um, when you're taking a broader societal perspective, um, it, it is uh, the, the realization that the ideology matters less, not that you don't need to understand it or what they're believing, but once you, you are freed up from, like, you're not going to argue them out of it, it kind of forces you to go, Okay, well, what what does cause them to disengage? What does cause them to move to something healthier? I just as you're describing this, it's it's hitting me how strong of a parallel uh, a lot of what has been talked about regarding uh, conspiracy theories is functioning the exact same way. That the conspiracy theory is a kind of uh, psychological. Uh, it's a psychological salve that has an explanatory power that gives like meaning and reason for whatever trauma or, or difficulty or challenge you've had, whether that's social isolation, uh, economic factors or like trauma. I mean, it's just, it's fun. It's it's functioning in the same way. And when you, God, just the, the idea of needing to resort to violence for that and how that starts or perpetuates cycles of violence, which are going to perpetuate the, the same radicalization. It's just, it's a, wow. I'm just, I'm just kind of, I don't know. I, I don't have a question there. Yeah. Well, so maybe, I mean, maybe like, uh, you know, we were talking about how in your professional experience, this was often what you're doing this work in relation to overseas Islamic, largely terrorism. What What's the parallel that you began to observe in domestic radicalization? Yeah. So um, sadly, uh, the data that wasn't really obvious until I would say the last few years, um, the data shows that the preponderance of the attacks and plots that we have seen in the United States uh, since 1994 um, uh, come from what we would classify as domestic terrorism. So these are uh, not um, inspired by or directed by foreign terrorist organizations. These are U.S. citizens with um, and usually ideologies associated with anti-government extremism, uh, militias, for example, or uh, white supremacist extremism. And um, if you if you look across and let their think tanks and social scientists that do this, um, like that we've had more people killed by these groups, we've had more attacks, more arrests, 
by these groups. Um, but largely for most of the tw last 20 years, we've been very focused on Al Qaeda and ISIS and, and rightfully so they had this one massive catastrophic um, attack that devastated us. And it was appropriate for us to then figure out how to make sure that never happens again. But in the meantime, we had this festering, bubbling, uh, violent extremist problem within our own country that we uh, we largely ignored. And one of the things that we, when we were struggling to find um, countermeasures that did not infringe upon your First Amendment right to hold a belief, one of the things that we we discovered is that behavioral indicators of somebody getting ready to commit an attack are very common, regardless of what your ideology is. Mm -hmm. Then we also discovered that prevention factors, protective factors that you can try try to add give to somebody are kind of are common, uh, regardless of the ideology. The good news is is that the way that we can detect and the way that we can help people that are either in the process of radicalizing or the process of um, mobilizing to violence uh, is actually ideologically neutral. Like you, you can be agnostic to the belief system and focus more on factors um, that uh, are about behavior and um, and not demographics or religion. So, so that's the good news. <laughs> the bad news is that um, we, not only we're seeing this increase of uh, domestic terrorism attacks and plots um, up into 2020, but on the uh, you know with January 6th we have this moment where um, most violent extreme people that study violent extremism are like, oh, this is different than anything else we've ever seen. Mm. Um, the average age of the person that's been indicted for January 6th is significantly higher than your typical. Mm organized violent extremist. Um, they are more employed, They meaning they have uh, more stable jobs, higher income. Um, they, uh, they're they married uh, in, in greater numbers than uh, the typical violent extremist uh, is. So some of this, the community is going, oh, this is different <laughs> and we need to better understand what happened. Um, and I've, I've seen a few researchers, in particular, the University of Chicago has a, a program that's been studying the, uh, the, the people that have been arrested for January 6th. And, um, you know, they, they think this is less about violent extremism and more a mass political violence movement. And there are studies that we are seeing, um, polls of, of people that um, have basically uh, you're, you're looking at 20 million, depending on the poll, 20 million to 30 or 40 million Americans who believe that violence is justified to achieve their political aim. So wow. if the, they believe the election has been overturned and uh, taken away from them, then violence is justified. I mean, that's approaching 10% of, of the American population. Yeah. 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 And um, I'm sure you know this, but let's just state it plainly, there are only 18,000 law enforcement agencies in this country. Um, it We don't have enough resources. Yeah. I think it's a total of like 80, 800,000 law enforcement officers that uh, carry a badge and a gun. 800,000 against 20 million ain't going to yeah. work. So um, thankfully, as we've already talked about, 
just because you hold that belief, just because you hold a radicalized belief, this idea that violence is justified, does not mean that you're actually going to mobilize to violence. It's it's likely just going to be a very small percentage that would ever try to do something. But if you end up with a Donald Trump type figure saying, show up at this time and place, then that could be a problem. Uh, likewise, it, it the, that large pool of radicalized individuals become very um, uh, a, a target-rich environment for organized violent extremist groups like neo-Nazis or militia to recruit from and draw them into something. And, and hey, it's it that's the those are the types of movements that have done things like stolen. Um, uh, military grade weaponry and, and, and um, you know, conducted or attempted to conduct mass attacks, bombings, the Oklahoma City bombing being one of the most um, uh, familiar. Um, so th- these are very dangerous individuals. And we have unfortunately created a, a target rich environment for them to recruit people into their movement. Well, I, and I want to, I really, I really want to talk about that, especially in terms of how that has some really concerning is such an understated uh, way to describe this, uh, really concerning cultural implications because, I mean, 0.1% of 20 million people is still 20,000 people. I mean, that, it doesn't, when, and when you have, um, you know, a media environment that, you know, I just, I was, I was, as you were talking about this, I was thinking about how the uh, Tucker Carlson documentary, uh, Patriot Purge, is is yes. is literally and very explicitly reframing January sixth as a cause or a reason for uh, that justifies violence as a, a way of self defense and response, not violent extremism. It's it's reframing it in such a way that increases the plausibility and permissibility structures, and and it it has a huge audience. He's the single highest rated, uh, most watched anchor on cable news. And so I, I'm just like, I'm, I'm sitting here like listening to you and, I'm, and I have in my head how much the pandemic anxiety is swirling around in this. And that that came mm-hmm. a, at the tail end of the Trump administration, which introduced a, a new level of anxiety in our culture. And then at the same time, all of this is happening, our, it feels like, like, like our podcast name is uh, everything just changed because it feels like everything just changed even outside of the pandemic that accelerated things for sure but the cultural and and demographic shifts that you're talking about among those who uh stormed the capitol building on January 6th there uh you you made a statement when we were talking about this earlier that I really want to just ask the question if the cultural change is the thing that is that is actually stoking all of this how in the world do we, how do, how do we respond? Because it feels so overwhelming how much this media environment is saturating uh, with, not even if it's not misinformation, it's it maybe an exaggeration or a, we're constantly inundated with all of these threats. It's, I'm actually like, well, it kind of makes sense that someone w- might think violence could be necessary. Like I could see how that would predispose you. So how, what, what do you do in the midst of all that? One of the findings from the University of Chicago study uh, was this realization that they, they took everybody that's been indicted 
um, and plotted it on a map. And then they examined demographic trends. And one of the things that they um, noticed, besides what I had already mentioned, you know, they're just they're older, they're more employed, that that stuff. Um, was this realization that they were coming out of counties that were not like staunch red counties. Hmm. Um, they, they were actually more like purple or blue counties that had, ex had seen pretty significant shifts, not only in, um, you know, their voting in recent years, but also in their demographics um, that they had shifted from being predominantly white to either, um, you know, white slight majority or white, you know, might be, still be the largest percentage, but they were no longer above the 50% uh, threshold. And one of the things that, um, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about in recent, uh, in the last year, Tucker Carlson um, has taken to using language that is well known to be associated with uh, the uh, white, a white, uh, uh, white supremacist, um, ideology, this idea of the white race being replaced. They call it the great replacement theory. And there are lots of sub conspiracy theories that it's, you know, planned by the Jews or that it's planned by the elites, uh, that there is an orchestration to it. Um, and the, the, uh, but the goal is to eliminate um, the white race through intermarriage, through um, migration, through a whole, you know, there's lots of sure. various rabbit holes of conspiracy you can go yeah. down. Um, the, the, the Tucker Carlson version of it, which um, I, I, being a conservative, I had heard variations on this for at least 20 years, uh, was that, you know, the Democrats want to bring um, more people from uh, Mexico and South America into our country so that they can become Democratic voters and um, get rid of Repu the Republican Party. Um, this, this mistaken, actually, belief that if you're an immigrant, you're more likely to be a Democrat. Um, and, and so Tucker frames it more as the the Democrats attempt to take over and, and gain power by bringing in more constituents for themselves. Um, but he started using the language that was much more explicitly about whites versus everybody else. And, um, and he was summarily condemned uh, for, for the same reason that he's sowing seeds that are, are it's at a, at a minimum, a dog whistle for the, the, the true white supremacist, white nationalists who really know what he's talking about and that they firmly believe it. And, that, and by the way, I should say that this ideology um, culminates with this vision that there needs to be a race war and that we need to overthrow the United States so we can establish a white nation to preserve the white race. So this is an inherently violent ideology. It is not just a commentary on demographic trends. It is um, at its core, this idea that we've got to preserve the white race. Mm. Um, and, and that is, you know, it's, it is ugly and, and, um, unbiblical and sinful, uh, and, uh, currently being spouted by several of, uh, Fox News's opinion, uh, primetime, um, anchors. And, um, and, and you're taking a, a conspiratorial concept and making it mainstream, which is some, one of the factors of what has happened on the yeah. right in recent years is things that used to be extreme um, are now considered a part of the mainstream conversation. So I, I'm 
I want to make sure I'm sort of understanding and maybe thinking out loud here, but the data that you shared on the kind of uh, older, wealthier, more likely to be married um, is fascinating because you're talking about instead of uh, somebody living in his mom's basement, it's, it's a grandma is now being radicalized or grandpa is being radicalized maybe. And then you're saying that's maybe as many as 20 to 30 million Americans and sort of the, the end game of the, the ideology is race war. I don't think 20 to 30 million Americans realize that maybe they're in a place of vulnerable to radicalization towards those ends. Right. I, and I, I think one of the hardest things about the moment that we're in is that um, people in my line of business, we don't know exactly how to talk about this because the moment that you start drawing parallels to Islamic jihadist uh, terrorism. You're kidding. um, That's going to be problematic for some audiences. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, immediately it shuts them down, right? Like you're, you don't, uh, you don't understand what I'm actually angry about. Um, It goes back to the disinformation problem, right? Because they genuinely believe the election was stolen. You know, you take that mix out of it. You're not in a a mass political violence problem. Um, But they genuinely believe that their country is at, you know, at risk of of falling apart, and and they have been told for 20, 30 years on uh, Rush Limbaugh and Fox News that they are under attack, that the left is coming to get you, and so there's they're living in a place of absolute fear that the the life that they have known, the country that they love is going to be destroyed in their lifetime or their grandchildren's lifetime. I, I mean, I've heard, I do that at home all the time. Like that's, that is just, that is the yeah. norm um, in conservative well, circles. We, we, we just interviewed David French to talk about liberal, classical liberalism and illiberalism. And a, a huge part of our conversation with him was how illiberalism becomes uh, plausible or tempting or something that we gravitate towards in part because we're experiencing a move from having, you know, a, a, a history or assumption of kind of cultural influence or cultural power. And when we move from majority to minority uh, inf- level influence, that makes it harder to to feel like you have a place at the table because you've never been there before. And so to your point of like, we don't really know how to talk about this. Like I'm just sitting here thinking and realizing how much what that study is saying is that the things that we have normally considered to be risk factors for radicalization aren't applying because what we're actually seeing is a loss of cultural influence and a, 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 a an entire demographic or kind of, uh, uh, category of people in our country who don't have the tools or skills or even experience to know how to handle uh, that loss. Uh, to your point about grieving right. earlier, and it's it's hard, like even as I'm saying this, I'm just like, wow, there will be some people who may hear me and think that I'm like making an excuse for that kind of thing. But that we, if we're going to actually address the problem, we act we actually have to dr- address the root of the problem which it sounds like what you're saying is that it's it's actually a a a, mass, a seismic cultural shift that is leaving people existentially unmoored and the ideology is actually giving them uh, a a purpose that is only attractive because they're experiencing that that unmooring 
Is that, is that accurate? Yes. I think you summed that up really, really nicely. And it's the um, challenge in, on the security side is we can see, we can see like, I, there's terms for this. You are experiencing loss of significance. Mm. You are experiencing a loss of um, uh, uh, agency or power. Um, and those are common factors in people who have committed attacks. Now you can go through those things and not commit an attack just because you have a loss of significance or a loss of power does not mean that you're predestined to go commit an act of violence. But those that do, usually that is one of the key reasons why they have decided that it is time to uh, carry out whatever horrific idea they had. And, and so the concern is if you have on a mass scale, a lot of people experiencing that loss of power, that loss of control, which COVID exacerbated, right? Like everybody went through that. But then you add to it a culture that is telling you every single day you turn on the television that you are being attacked, that your way of life is, is going to come to an end. You, this, this is it. You got to stand up for what you believe in. And increasingly those voices are using language of, of as a call to it's, arms. It's indoctrination. You know, had, You're describing indoctrination. Yes. And, and like dangerous and dangerous language yeah. that, um, that again, you're not talking about, like we use, you heard this in just after January 6th, um, out of certain personalities, uh, an attempt to claim that the Biden administration or uh, security officials are trying to label you a Trump voter, a mm. terrorist. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, I don't know anybody that has has said that or come close to saying that. Everybody, if they're if they're saying anything, is so scared of accidentally being interpreted that way because we know, by the way, that would be another reason that somebody could radicalize. If, yeah. they, if they think that their government is labeling them a terrorist, well, heck, wouldn't you want to defend yourself and, and take up arms and join a militia because your government is overreaching its power and labeling you a terrorist? Like, So it, you don't want to accidentally feed the cycle. Mm. So you, you have this really challenging space where government is actually not best positioned to try to help those that are in that vulnerable category or in that radicalized category. What we need is people that are in those communities yeah. to come alongside mm. those that are struggling with the fear and with the anger mm -hmm. um, to, to address, go back to what I said earlier, it's not about the ideology mm. to address the unmet yeah. needs. And what we could have had, what we could have had as we, you know, we, these demographic shifts were coming we knew that, um, you know, that, that increasingly the, you know, I'm from the middle of the country, the middle of the country operates and lives differently than the coast. You know, that, I, I think that's a beautiful thing about our country. But um, as people uh, continue to otherize the other, mm. um, you know, we, we, we could have had a leader in in conservative side that says actually you know hey isn't this a great thing about our country that you can live in texas the way you want to live in texas and the people in new york can live in the way that people in new york want to live and yeah you're right what's happening in portland seattle that is like nuts yeah. aren't you glad that you live in a state where you don't have to deal with that and the people of portland that's their job yeah. under the 10th amendment to vote out the mayor 
um, and or vote out, you know, uh, the Seattle City Council because they allowed the autonomous zone to go nuts. Like there are ways to talk about the the things that are truly happening that are causing the fear, and and offer a different way to to handle it or to process it and to help people realize. This isn't the end of the world. This, we're not facing existential threats. Um, and oh, by the way, if you're a Christian, you have the hope of the world. <laughs> like yeah. it, your hope is not in this country. And there are so many other other things that um, that we could be focusing on instead of uh, exacerbating the, the loss of power, the loss of significance that many are feeling. I want to ask a question that I asked you during the pastor's workshop. And uh, this is kind of one of those questions that I think puts a, a name on everything that you, we've been talking about so far, which is um, in an era and in a, 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 it's not just season, I would say age, where institutional skepticism is so high and the traditional guardrails on on these kinds of things, like I, I picture institutions kind of functioning as kind of a, uh, a, a brake pumping um, uh, communities within the country that make it harder to to centralize sig- this kind of significant change but because people are increasingly skeptical not participating it it doesn't have that that ability to do so and so if all of this is is the case it, it just strikes me how much everything whenever we're talking about the culture wars and polarization are we actually in a maybe an asymmetric or a just a, a cold civil war already uh, because every all of the dynamics you're describing and talking about are as if we were having not a military conflict, but a social and cultural conflict that is n- no less uh, a uh, a conflict or expression of power, but is actually has just as much a capability of tearing the country apart. Um, I I have had more time to think about that question since you asked it. Um, I do I. I do think that I agree with your premise. Um, disinformation by by definition is is a form of asymmetric warfare. So we're already in the middle mm. of it. Um, the weirdness is that it's both coming from foreign enemies overseas and then domestically people are using it for their gain. So whether it's for political power, for um, media, um, you know, get, look, earning viewers and clicks. Um, you know, we have social media that uh, has been in the news this fall for their um, intentional, uh, you know, ab- another form of abusive yeah. power. They, they know the harms that they're causing and they're intentionally not doing the things that they could do to make um uh, to help truth be told instead mm-hmm. of lies. And, um, you know, you, you do have lots of contributing factors to that asymmetric uh, aspect of warfare. On the Civil War piece, um, you know, I think, uh, borrow uh, David French in his uh, book from last yeah. year that came out before January 6th, and, and he made a comment after January 6th. Um, this is the book Divided We Fall. He basically was like, I thought I might be like exaggerating a little bit and how I was I was trying to be careful to like frame how this could happen. But now on the other side of January 6th, he's like, oh my gosh, I might have under, looks benign by uh, underestimated how quickly, yeah, yeah that this <laughs> could happen. Um, look, we, we 
are a good portion of this country, and, and I think David French said this when you guys interviewed him, a good portion of our country is exhausted and yeah. checked out. Mm. And they're checked out out of for good reasons, and I won't repeat what he said. But like, it's not all just apathetic. It is like out of survival or out of the ability to maintain relationships with others. They are checked yeah. out. Um, unfortunately, that leaves the very loud, um, obnoxious, uncivil voices left in the uh, public space. And um, that they're continuing to tear apart our yeah. country. So if if we want the civil war to stop, we have to kind of figure out how to return to basic civic norms. And that's really hard to do while we're continuing to deal with mm -hmm. waves of a pandemic that shut us down. Um, we need very simple uh, things like to be back in uh, worship together as believers and to remember that even though I really disagreed with how you handled um, masking mm. uh, in that public space that we were at, um, you're still a, a follower of Christ and, and I am going to love mm. you. And, you know, the, the, the idea that um, we can disagree with somebody but still love or disagree with somebody and still treat them with kindness and human dignity because they are made in the image of God. Um, that is what we need more yeah. of. And it will be a very slow process to crawl out of um, because all of these other factors continue to uh, perpetrate or uh, 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 kind of balance the scales towards the um, being more uncivil, more um, more broken in how we treat one another. I, I, the place where I find hope is that uh, we have seen in 60 year cycles, uh, upheaval like mm. this, where, um, if you go back to the sixties and the seventies, the last time that we, as a society kind of said, the way that we work is not working. We're throwing everything up. And then like, it took a lot, long time that you know, our institutions had to change. Um, the way that we interacted with one another had to change. Um, there were good things that came out of that. There were bad things yeah. that came out of that upheaval. Mm. And I think we're in the middle of that upheaval. Wow. And now's the time to engage, to try to build in healthy, you know, when on the other side of this 20 years from now, when our kids are looking back and saying, you know, there was good and there was bad, I would like to put more of the good back in. Um, that is about uh, treating one another with civility and with kindness um, and rejecting the way that we have been acting the last 20 years. Uh, but man, that's going to take a lot of work and, and there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee that, that we survive through yeah. this, but I, I, I think it is a cold, as you would say, cold mm. civil war. So I, yeah. I think maybe that, that last yeah. thing you said is a great connection. Cause I wanted to see if we can maybe shift gears a little bit and try to connect some of the dots to like the, the implications for the church just as a reminder, so Elizabeth, you are um, you're you're from Texas. Uh, you're a conservative. <laughs> you're an evangelical Christian. You know you you held an uh, an appointment in the Trump administration, and so I would just love to hear like your story on um, getting to the place where you are now, where you're where you're talking about um, disinformation and the abuse of power and radicalization. And how that has been happening, you know, largely 
you know, maybe there's a Venn diagram. A, a lot of of your experience overlaps with the places where that misinformation is coming from. My my uh, family background very conservative. I mean, it was Texas, right? Like, yeah. so it's very conservative. <laughs> Um, it's Bible Belt, although we did not go to an SBC church. We um, went to Bible churches, um, uh, but very grounded in teach the scripture, um, the importance of, of prayer and community and a personal relationship with the Lord. Um, so the moving into my, my professional experience, um, it, January 6th was one of those moments that it will always be a gut punch because it, I was um, on standby to do analysis for a a news media organization and watching, you know, the pictures and there was a Christian flag there. Mm. Um, There were people using bullhorns to um, pray uh, outside of the Capitol Mm -hmm. as they were beating Capitol police officers um, there was the famous prayer of the QAnon shaman, who I don't think any of us would consider a Christian, but uh, certainly was using Christian language. You know, like it was this gut punch to be like, I, you know, I'd had this uncomfortable feeling about what I'll call my community, the, the Republican Christian community mm. that I'd been a part of my entire life. And I had been growing distant from it in the last, you know, I don't know, six, seven, eight years. Like, you know, they're, they're saying things that I don't know that is actually like, doesn't God say that we're supposed to care for the immigrant and the refugee? Like, it seems like that rhetoric is not really consistent with scripture, mm. but you would find yourself in places where, uh, you know, the policy argument is the preeminent, you know, talking point as opposed to what does the Bible say? And okay, that's fine if you're in your workplace, but sometimes that would be the case when you'd be at Bible study and you'd just be like, this is not, this is something's disconnecting. What was that like to, to like have that kind of rising cognitive spiritual dissonance in the, in the, in that tension and then to like have it reach a tipping point such that you're having to kind of untangle those cultural assumptions from scripture. Like what was, what was that process like? The Lord prepared me for the, the, for coming into the Trump administration. And I, it would take me an hour to tell you all the unique and sweet ways in which he did that. Um, but the most important thing was a solid, solid grounding in scripture um, and a absolute uh, submission to him and his opinion only and not needing man's approval. That doesn't mean my feelings can't get hurt, but, but this, you know, he, he had been doing a lot of work for almost a mm-hmm. decade um, before I got that call to go in. And, um, and I would not have made it absent, um, you know, a daily uh, being in front of the Lord, pleading for wisdom, mm. pleading for protection. I mean, it was, it, it, it was, I, there's, um, uh, somebody once described it as 10 dimensional chess with, um, you know, the chess pieces having knives that can stab you in the back at any moment in any dimension. Um, you know, it just was extremely toxic, exhausting. Meanwhile, like you're like, 
I'm just trying to do the security job and keep like the terrorists out of the country <laughs> and not, I, you know, you guys can fight amongst yourselves. Um, so the, but the, the thing is, is as I look back on it, um, the aha moment that my faith had been corrupted um, by politics, not mine personally, but my, the church, the, the culture that I had grown up in um, and that they were not following scripture mm-hmm. That happened well before I joined the Trump administration. That that was, um, and it came from uh, reading like cover to cover the full Bible, not just you know certain expert excerpts or not just a sermon series, but for myself and and praying and understanding and seeking God's wisdom. It my husband and I love sermons, like we're sermon geeks, so we'll listen to sermons <laughs> during the week. Yeah, but it was very much this, um, you know discipling of, uh, you know, that, yeah, I was in Bible studies, the kind of Bible studies that women do where you're doing hours worth of homework, um, you know, daily, um, you know, I can't do, I don't have the time to do that anymore, but there were like four or five years that I, that I did that. And I loved it. You know, I just loved getting into the word. All of that prepared me for, um, a, a moment when we were in Dallas, um, and it wasn't a particular moment, it was like more of this period that we were in Dallas and we were attending the village church, which is Matt Chandler's church. Um, and he, the, the pastoral staff in the village church was willing to point out the flaws in the culture yeah. that we were living mm-hmm. in there in Dallas, Texas, um, where we were missing what scripture was mm-hmm. teaching. And they do it lovingly and they do it, do it winsomely, but it forced us to have those conversations that like, you know, maybe, maybe we are idolizing our, our country, idolizing our politics or patriotism. Um, and, and it, so we worked through a lot of that well before that phone call yeah, came. Yeah, and yeah. so when things started to play out, I mean, never in my wildest dreams did I think it was going to be as bad as it was, <laughs> but um, it also, I was able to grieve and can I, can I go back to grief real quick? I know we're running long time. I think it's so important for those of us that have watched our communities be deceived and follow after idols. I really think it's important for us to be in grief over that and lament Mm. that. Um, It, what you all have experienced as pastors these last two years, the abuse that I'm sure that you have experienced, um, the lot people walking away because they uh, uh, disagree with your politics or disagree with what you taught that Sunday. Uh, that is painful. And that, and that is um, part of taking up our cross mm. daily. Like, and I, for most of us, this is the first time in our lives we've ever had a hint mm. that there is an, an aspect of sacrifice in our faith. And, and it is okay to, to be like, Oh, this hurts Mm. that this is, this is sad. And, um, I, I experienced, um, last year, much like a stripping away of everything that I had hoped for that had any sort of worldly implications, just every layer kept coming off over and over again to where you're like, the only thing left is Jesus. Mm. And that's a, a, both a precious and beautiful, beautiful place to be. It's also a really painful place mm. to be because there, there were many things in this world that God had blessed us with as a country that um, we should have, we should be grateful for. And they, many of them are faltering and failing right now. And so there is loss there and it's okay for us 
to to acknowledge that loss. Elizabeth, I'm just as you're talking, I'm noticing that like you, I hear both like profound grief and gratitude at the same time and just the love that you like you nobody will notice because they're you know they're listening to this on audio but like you lean forward in your chair and like like you have so much expertise to offer from your story and your background but the thing that has like clearly moved you more than anything you've talked about is as your love of the church and i i just i, I don't want to rush past that because that is what is both at stake and our way out of this at the same time. Yeah. You, I'm, you've got me tearing up a bit. That's um... I, I, Brad and I, you know, we're, 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 we're pastors. We're typically talking with like pastors, theologians, authors uh, who write in that space, people who are thinking overtly in Christian, you know, contexts. And so I think for a lot of us, you know, the circumstances of our work have, have, forced us to have to start untangling cultural and biblical assumptions. And, and that has maybe led to an awareness um, of issues of power and misinformation. And so often, especially pastors, we're working with our people in our churches whose work hasn't forced them, you know, their circumstances hasn't forced them, haven't forced them to do that same untangling. You've done some of that. You're in the, you're in the middle of those sorts of places, those those conversations, work environments, and so I'm really curious to get your thoughts on what do we really need to understand in the era that we're living in, and and, and what role should the church play uh, in that process? This and I'm glad we finally get to this part because this is where I get hopeful, and and that doesn't mean that everything is going to play out. Right. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm too much of a, I've seen too much to know, uh, you know, we, we do have a lot that we're up against, but the, the thing about the disinformation and the, um, what I would, I would frame it as, you know, the deception of the church, um, at wide swaths of the American church, um, and, and about some portion of the, that deception that has led to a radicalized group of people that, that think violence is justified. The good news is, is that the way to bring about disengagement, maybe not de-radicalization, but disengagement from this idea that, that violence is needed, um, is, are things that the church is already really equipped or, or should be equipped to do. Um, what we have learned is that empathy and coming alongside somebody and understanding where they are is the most important step to bringing somebody to disengagement. Now, you you can't it's it's kind of like um, uh, you, you're hearing me use similar language that you might hear somebody who's who's talking about somebody with an addiction. Um, some of this has to happen on their own timing when they're ready to to disengage but they're more likely to choose that step if they feel that they have a safe place that they can turn to. If they have a sense of somebody loves me for who I am and I'm going to leave behind this community that has given me belonging and significance uh, for this other community that is going to hopefully be healthier for me. Um, so I, I think the church has this really amazing opportunity. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Matt Chandler sermons 
uh, recently. And so he, he has this line that the church was made for a time like this. I think that's so mm-hmm. true. Um, the, the need to be, uh, to offer grace, to, to offer empathy and love for people, even in their radicalized beliefs. Now, what I'm not saying is that if you are in an abusive relationship, that you should stay in an abusive relationship or that if you've been personally um, hurt by, you know, emotionally or, or, or um, physically by somebody like that, that, that is not your mission. Uh, you need to be healed. You need um, your, your own support system. But if, if you, you are equipped by the Lord to be able to minister to, to tough people that need to be loved on, um, you know, or need want to learn how to do that, like that, that that's awesome. And like, that's, that is what our mission is to be uh, light in their darkness. Um, the other ways that I think the church can help and probably have um, in many ways more of an impact because that, uh, that direct intervention work is very tough. Um, it often does not work. It is, uh, you know, prayer is super important. Um, you know, that, that's another way you could help without being directly engaged with somebody that is radicalized. Um, there are services, I should say, they're not enough, but there are services that can be contacted to help somebody if they're uh, truly radicalized. And I should also say, if somebody you love, you think is planning violence, you do need to contact law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And that's a really hard decision, but you could absolutely be the one person that might know something's about to happen and you could save lives if, if you contact law enforcement. But out, outside of that really um, uh, in-depth uh, you know, somebody that is really radicalized, the other roles that the church has are so important related to being able to build up those protective factors that we talked about, helping address those vulnerabilities in people. If somebody is dealing with a loss of significance or the loss of a loved one, I mean, we have uh, been equipped to be able to meet those needs. And that that is what our mission is here is to, to be able to seek and help those that are lost and hurting. Um, so I, I really do think that the church has uh, such an important role to play. And in many ways, it has nothing to do with politics. And the politics is a distraction from that mission um, yeah. where what people um, really need in, to hear is that in the chaotic and upside down times that we're living in, that their hope can be found and anchored in Jesus mm. and not our country or our politics mm. or COVID getting over. Like, and look, that is a hard thing to actually live out day in and day out. But if you're making disciples, then you're, you're showing them how you live this out day after day. And, and it's, it's not, um, it's not a one time or one decision uh, moment uh, where we decide, okay, I'm going to put my, my hope in Jesus. Like for me, like there were days then when I was being bombarded with bad news after bad news about, um, you know, <laughs> the country's, uh, challenges and you're, you, you literally would have to stop and be like, okay. And, and grieve it and be like, I'm still going to choose to trust, trust and put my hope, not in what, I can physically touch and see my hope is in Christ. And what do you want me to do, Lord, in this particular moment? How am I supposed to help? And maybe it's just through prayer. Maybe it's through some sort of physical action. But that that training and that encouragement over and over and over again on a daily basis, that's what changes 
our country for the better because it's coming from that genuine place, not um, some external set of, you know, idealized what America as a Christian nation is supposed to look like. Wow. Um, gosh. I mean, you just summed up so much of what this conversation has been about. So, gosh, thank you. I, I love especially how you kind of you talked about the importance of empathy, um, because I, I think as Christians, we can tend to think of things in very black and white ways. We can tend to think of things as a matter of what's true and what's false, right? And and it's impo- like we're we believe in the truth, <laughs> and and that's good. That's right. But when we're talking about information and misinformation, we're really talking about what's true and and what's being distorted. How the truth is being mm. distorted. I think what you're helping us connect the dots on is that so much of how we steward power is about the wisdom of knowing how and when to apply uh, the truth and how we actually embody the truth uh, instead of just sort of using the truth as a weapon. Yeah. I did, you know, as you bring it back to power um, and I shared with you guys before we started, um, I, I have thought of power in the context of, uh, you know, governmental authority has served in government. There's power that comes from um, being in, in uh, a governmental role. And then a lot about the abuse of mm-hmm. power. Um, and especially my tenure at, at uh, in government this last go round was, was a lot about abuse of power and how you can try to prevent that abuse of power. And um, when you think about the, the, problem or the challenges that we're facing as a country right now, um, where you do have people intentionally abusing their power uh, through disinformation um, that is leading to the deception of a mass amount of people that is leading them to feel like they have lost power, they've lost their significance, and therefore Um, The way to get that back is um, to try to exercise their own form of power. Like it's this cycle of um, a fight for, for power that's leading to, to violence. And I, and I think one of the, you know, beautiful things about what you guys are exploring in your series here is this idea of the stewardship of power um, that power can be used for good. It can be used for justice. It can be used for seeking and um, explaining truth, and um, and what about what an awesome opportunity in the midst of this um, uh, abuse of power throughout our society, leading to really horrific uh, results, um, for us to come alongside and those that are hurt and lost and feeling that loss of power and that desire to go get it back, um, you know, to come alongside and and offer the alternative. Mm-hmm. That it, it's not, it's by being a part of the body of Christ, you are um, part of the one that truly is all powerful. Mm. Um, and, but he's also all good. He doesn't abuse his mm. power. Mm. So what an amazing oppor- like offer. Like if you are feeling powerless, I would much rather be with somebody that is truly all powerful than trying to seek in my own sense of control and power um, through violent means. Uh, and, and I think that's where the, the church has this opportunity to, to meet, meet them where they are. You're not going to argue them out of that belief system that, that they've been deceived into, but 
but you can certainly meet that need, that feeling like they're out of control, that they've lost their power, they've lost their significance, because we actually have the correct answer to that. Wow. It's not through political mm. aims or getting a certain president to power. It is in a relationship with Jesus. Wow. Elizabeth, this has been such a just fascinating and fun conversation. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. What just occurred to me as you were talking just now is that you professionally were in a place where you know your 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 work on inf- information and disinformation you were doing that at a high level and focused externally and then you found yourself in a position where you needed to actually kind of apply those same categories internally to the <laughs> the actual institution within which you're working and i tell you we we used to say the call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> and, and, but, but I think that, that a big part of that is not just that you're doing that work sort of professionally in that capacity, but that you had a, a, a level of formation, discipleship, and character that allowed you to, to know how to, with wisdom, apply some of those categories of, hey, we've seen this overseas. We've seen this you know, with white nationalist groups. Now we're seeing this like within our own organization. And I think that that what you're doing for us right now is not just sharing your time and experience, but you've actually like modeled what it looks like to, to, to steward power really effectively as a Christian and really yeah. wisely. Yeah. So thank you so much for talking with us, but thank you also just for your example of, of doing that on our behalf. Thank you for the encouragement. I really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. We would love to know what just changed for you. Join the conversation on our Facebook group. You can search for Everything Just Changed on Facebook or click the link in the show notes and let us know what changed for you after listening to this episode. Everything Just Changed is edited by Nathan Michelle. Our logo and theme music are by Danny Rankin. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Join us as we continue our series on power, seeking to equip leaders who just can't even anymore on Everything Just Changed. Everything Just Changed.